This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill. I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. Uh, great topic this morning. I know that uh, Money Talks talked a little bit about the Social Security Administration this morning, and, and uh, good that they're our warm-up uh, show, because <laughs> now we're going to move into the real stuff with, um, with Francis Springer. And Francis is uh, a lawyer who has given very generously to this show of his time. Um, and, you know, this topic is really important. I don't think people realize how, how important agencies and administrative agencies are to their lives. I mean, you think about the Food and Drug Administration, uh, all of those have an impact. So, Francis, thank you for, for coming back to the show. Can you, can you please remind us a little bit about your background? Sure, sure. First, I'd like to thank y'all for having me again. I really enjoy being on in legal terms, and I enjoy listening to the program when I'm not on here. It's really, really good. A uh, little bit about me. I've been practicing law in Jackson since 2011. I'm a graduate of the Mississippi College School of Law here in Jackson. Uh, before that, I was a deputy sheriff in Meridian, uh, Lauderdale County Sheriff's Office and kind of made the move midlife, I guess you would say, toward the legal practice, and I really enjoy it. Uh, married, have three children, and I'm a solo practitioner. I have my own office, like I say, here in Jackson. I primarily practice criminal defense, family law, wills and probates, and administrative appeals. And, you know, I think, you know, I think it's important for the listeners to know that the lawyers that we have on the show, you know, they're, they're volunteers and they're taking an hour of their time. And, you know, instead of billing clients right now, Francis is with us, you know, giving his expertise. And we really appreciate that. Uh, so, Francis, what, what exactly are administrative agencies and what, what is administrative law? Like you said, the Social Security Administration is an excellent example of an administrative agency. Administrations or administrative agencies are set up by laws like any other statute. The legislature or Congress with the signature of the governor or the president, depending on state or federal, uh, establishes the administrative agencies. And those agencies within themselves can come up with regulations that are enforceable as law, uh, as authorized by the statute. And that's generally what administrative law is. So you know, and you and you, we, we talk about uh, federal agencies, but your your primary uh, practices with state agencies. So, can you tell us a little bit about you know some of the those agencies that you interact with? Sure. Probably the most one that I interact with would be the Employee Appeals Board. From I guess it's under the Mississippi. Um, I, I forgot the actual name it's under, but it's the Mississippi Employee Appeals Board. Basically, it's a portion of that. And that is the body that you go to if you're a state service employee and you've been either disciplined or terminated, you have the right to an appeal. Most workers in Mississippi have no right to their employment whatsoever, but state workers, like civil service uh, workers, they have rights to appeal. So that's okay. Now, all right. So let's say I, uh, a state worker, 
uh, is terminated or I guess uh, even maybe disciplined in some way, when would they come to you uh, to, for, for advice? Uh, many times they come to me when they've been notified that there's some type of pending discipline. The, the agency generally tells them that we're planning or investigating you or planning to um, enact some discipline against you. So they have the opportunity then to have a hearing within that agency first. And those generally are pretty unbiased. You would think that's the own agency doing their own hearing, but my experience has been that they do look into the full facts of the case. And if the discipline goes through, then the employee has the right to appeal to the employee appeals board. And uh, that is time barred, you know, so it has to be done quickly and all fees have to be paid. They're not many, but there are some fees. Those have to be paid by the employee and then the agency's decision is reviewed. So, and some of the other agencies that you've mentioned, you mentioned uh, in your, as we talked before the show, uh, the Department of Public Safety, um, you know, is one of them. And uh, you know, how does that, that work? And the Department of Public Safety is established by Mississippi statute, and it encompasses many different agencies, one of which is the Highway Patrol. Another is kind of a branch of the Highway Patrol is the uh, the licensure of the driver's license, some people call it DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, and that's part of the Department of Public Safety. And generally they regulate things that come down from the legislature, enforcing the laws, uh, deciding who gets licenses, who doesn't, different things like that. But that would be a great example of a state administrative agency. And we got, we have an email. Uh, Liz, do you want to read it or you want, you want me to? Take this one. I will. There's a little bit before it also. And if you have a question, email us. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. And the question starts out. Uh, I sent the following to Money Talks this morning, too late in the program to be answered. All the difficulties of changing a woman's name upon marriage suggest that life will be simpler if she does not change her name with the IRS, Social Security, or driver's license. An additional problem from a name change is possibly voter ID not being accepted. Is it simpler for a woman to not change her name, except socially, if she wishes? Men do not have this problem. That is her question. And uh, tag on to the men don't have this problem, because I've heard a little bit differently on that. So uh, uh, Francis Springer, our guest today, talking about regulatory law. What is your comment about women not changing their name if there's a is there a legal consequence for not changing your name no i don't believe there's a legal consequence for it it's, it's really an option that traditionally the, the woman has in society now i have seen some some men that have had the names of both of their parents uh, so they're you know a person's name i guess is decided upon by the person uh, and by the parents, but once you're married, traditionally the woman takes the man's last name. And when a divorce comes about, sometimes they want to change that. And I've seen many, many women that had children with the same name that didn't want to change for that regard. But as far as the complications that it can create, 
is it's like exactly with any other identification you are going to have to go and notify a lot of these different agencies that your name has changed back and that can be a problem because you may not think of all the agencies at the time and the uh, example of voter registration and identification is, an, is a prime example because sometimes we don't think about that until we're there and then what do we do so it's a uh, it's a serious problem that can come up for people and it's a decision that the individual has to make and if they have problems and things like that well they probably need to consult with a local attorney and see what they can get straightened out I was the uh, producer for the Money Talks with the Social Security that just aired, which will be a podcast on moneytalks.mpbonline.org later this afternoon. And Sean Mercer, the district manager who was the host or who was the guest, did mention that if you want to change your name with Social Security, you do need to bring a legal document. An individual called and said that their mother in law wanted to revert to their maiden name and if it was a divorce decree I guess that might be a legal document if they were a, a widow they would have to get some kind of legal document through social uh, to present to social security a friend here a co-worker here at MPB her husband changed his name to her name and she told me that uh, the Social Security wouldn't use the marriage certificate. He had to actually go through the court system to change his name. And then a third thing is, uh, Professor Gershon, you and I talked last year about the real ID and that has been the requirement for that has been pushed back to October of 2021. I know my brother had a little bit of trouble getting his real ID because he's a junior on some things and not a junior on others. And uh, that kind of got all messed up. And my problem is I did put my maiden name as my middle name when I got married, but the IRS didn't give me the option, and it kept my middle initial as my birth middle initial. So names can cause all kind of havoc. Yeah, in fact, there's no requirement a woman change her name. In fact, my wife has kept her her, uh, maiden name. Uh, in our marriage. I remember when we moved here, uh, there was an announcement that uh, the, the former, uh, Richard Gershon and his wife, the former Donna Levine, uh, were moving uh, to Oxford. And, I, and she laughed because, well, you know, she is still Donna Levine. That's, her prof- that's the name she uses professionally when she works for Gardening Gun and has worked for other magazines. So, you know, uh, you don't have to change your name. Um, and I have been called Mr. Levine on occasions, and that's fine with me. You can send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing dealing with licensing agencies, environmental laws, all building departments, zoning, with our guest attorney, Francis Springer from the Springer Law Firm. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is In Legal Terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We are so pleased that Mr. Springer was able to meet with us today. He has been a welcome and popular guest on our show a few times. In May of 2020, he updated us on the court system during COVID in Mississippi. And in December of 2019, he gave us a few legal tips to use during the holidays. This morning, we are talking about administrative law with attorney Francis Springer. Well, Liz, I'm glad you mentioned the court system because, you know, uh, Francis did uh, talk to us about the court system in, in the last uh, segment that he uh, was on, last time he was on the show. But how are administrative bodies different from courts or the legislature? If I can real quick, uh, Professor Gerson and Leo, let me I can kind of patch a place that I had left off. The Employee Appeals Board is under the Mississippi Personnel Commission, so that's uh, that's one thing I should have known right off. And the second is to the last segment's question about the divorce. If you are in a divorce and a woman does want to take her maiden name back, be sure that the attorney or whoever's drawing up your papers puts that in the final decree because it is what you're going to need. If it's not done and you want to change it later, you'll have to go back to court. So I just wanted to touch on those two things. Uh, but back to how administrative agencies differ from courts. Generally, and I give an example of a federal agency, the ATF. A lot of people can identify with that, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. They come out with numerous legislation within their own body. You call it legislation. It's not traditional legislation, but it is rules and regulations. One that hit... Uh, popularity several years ago, quite unfortunately, after the shooting in Las Vegas was the bump stock. And President Trump ordered the administration to rule that as a regulated device, essentially illegal. And that's something that Congress didn't do, but the ATF had the authority to do. And that's what was done. And then those were then made uh, essentially contraband. Now, if someone got caught with one or there was some problems over that, they could appeal that to the court system. So the courts actually have oversight over the administrative agencies as much as the executive branch or the legislative branch would, just generally on the back end. So if I, if a regular, if a administrative agency issues a regulation, that has the effect of law, but what you're saying is not as strong as, say, a congressional uh, mandate through Congress, you know, a, a legislation there or, uh, you know, a court ruling. It, it does and it doesn't. It does until it's challenged. It's, it's something that, that, that fines can be uh, levied over within the agency. Back to the ATF, I have dealt with some issues there. 
And I know of, of what they call FFLs, federal firearms licensees who are licensed to build guns. They can get their license pulled or they can get fined and that stay within the agency. Uh, however, they can appeal that or take that to the court if the agency they feel like is done wrong. And of course, at the same time, the agency can go ahead and file criminal charges in some regards and go strictly to the courts. So it's kind of intertwined. The courts definitely have more authority, but if it never reaches the courts, the administrative agency is going to have the final say, sir. Yeah, I know in, in tax law, the regulations uh, uh, that regulate the Internal Revenue Code can be very helpful, actually, because they kind of flesh out what the code says and explain it. But um, they can be wrong and can be challenged. and. The thing is, though, that I guess they come with a presumption of correctness because that is the agency, the Treasury Department is the agency designed to set up those regulations uh, in tax law. So, um, you know, we talk about regulation a lot, um, and and that's that that's why we are you know such a regulated society. But um, well, you know, what's so what recourse do I have? Let's say you know I disagree with the decision of an administrative body. We talked a little bit about appeals before. Someone has they, they have their license turned down, their license for their business turned down, or they have an employment problem. Um, when should they talk to a lawyer? It, uh, is, should they talk to a lawyer before they even apply for those the license, for example? Not necessarily before they apply for a license, but as soon as they realize there's a problem and they feel like they're not going to be able to resolve it, oh, I would recommend talking to an attorney. Because some of the times for appeal are limited. And if you don't file your appeal within that time, it's pretty much gone away. You don't have a chance to bring it up again. And there's so many different ways that it could from, from I've seen people challenge not being able to get a driver's license to, to people challenging not being able to get a firearms dealer's license, things like that. So there's so many different ways that can be done. And they can have different times of appeal as well and different avenues of appeal. And like you say, usually the agency is presumed to be doing the right thing. I know with employee appeals, like we were talking about earlier, when we walk into that review, the agency is presumed to be correct. And the one challenging that has the burden of showing that's not correct. And that's not always easy. But again, the agency is part of the state. They're assumed to be running their agency the way they should. And generally they're seen as being correct. Now, you know, when we think about appeals, usually we think about appeals to an appellate court, you know, the, the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court. Where, when you go to court to appeal an administrative hearing or, or decision, where do you go? Usually the statute sets up where the appeal goes. Uh, go back to the uh, example of the employee appeals. If an employee appeals to the EAB, Employee Appeals Board, and they're not satisfied with the answer, their appeal goes to the circuit court. And since we're dealing with state employees, they're all over the state, so they have two places they could uh, appeal to, either the Hines County Circuit Court or the circuit court and the county that they were working in or are working in. Uh, so say, for example, somebody's working in, in Oxford, and this happens, they can appeal to the Circuit Court of Lafayette County or to Hounds County because that's where the government sits. So that would be jurisdiction. I'll give another example of things that uh, appeal from there is a police officer's professional certificate to be a police officer. I've dealt with some of those. Those are appealed by statute to Chancery Court. So it really depends on where the uh, legislature puts that in the statute when they create the agency and the ability to appeal. 
And so you, you mentioned that the administrative body is presumed to be correct. So when you go in to appeal for someone, what what is your burden of proof? What do you have to show to overturn that decision? There are different burdens set by, by the legislature. Um, and I'll give you an example there, civil service appeals. To overcome a, a discipline or a termination in civil service, you have to show that there was an action based taken based on religion, political views, or just not in good faith. So you've got to be pretty specific on those. Uh, the, the most probably hammered on, I would say, is the last one, not in good faith, because that's kind of a, a subjective premise to hit on. If you're looking elsewhere without that specific statutory direction, you're usually looking for an arbitrary and capricious decision, one that's just made basically in a whimsical manner that doesn't fit the situation. So the agency realizes that, and most of those disciplines are not that way. Honestly, most of them are done because they are deserving. And if the employee can't show that by a preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not that it happened, the decision is going to stand. This is your chance, folks. We've got a uh, law professor and a practicing attorney, Francis Springer. We're talking about dealing with regulatory agencies. This is your chance to call in free (laughs) or email in and get your questions answered to learn about your rights and learn what the law is. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Francis, you know, that, that term arbitrary and capricious, you know, I, I think I am a I am a an NFL football fan and you know I watch the reviews they do on the field, uh, you know, the video reviews of the, the referees, and the referees are presumed to have made the right call. And there they need, you know, uh, really a strong evidence to, to show that the, the, the call was wrong to overturn it. How does how does arbitrary and capricious work? I mean it's a similar kind of Appeal. We assume that uh, the organization got it right. What would be arbitrary and capricious? I give a prime example of a case I had uh, a couple of years ago. An employee was accused of uh, improper conduct while doing an inspection. Uh, he was terminated over that, and we appealed that. And when we went to the appeal, these must present witnesses. If this is under oath. This is a national constitutional due process. Um, procedure that goes through. Uh, the, the agency didn't produce any witnesses with any firsthand knowledge, and that was uh, an issue that we made. And because of that, they didn't have what was called, um, they didn't have the evidence that they needed. Substantial evidence is what the law says. And because of that, we were able to prevail, and it turned out those allegations were not true. We have a call who has called in. I guess that's the way calls come in. (laughs) Trey from Ridgeland has joined us. Trey, thanks for calling into In Legal Terms. What is your comment or question? I'm sorry, Trey, what's your comment or question? Yeah, um, so I used to work at Mississippi DEQ, and I really just wanted you guys to talk a little bit about due diligence buying commercial properties i used to work in that area and the importance of uh kicking the tires so to speak because of the the way the regulatory scheme is could y'all talk a little bit about that and and also maybe even if somebody's doing a renovation of a commercial property 
uh, the importance of getting an asbestos inspection. This is my one time to maybe kick a PSA kind of thing and, and point out the, the challenges that I typically see now that I'm out in the environmental consulting world. Thanks, Trey. That's an interesting topic because I've not dealt with that before. But what I'm what I'm going to guess that you're working on is with commercial property. When you transfer that, there are a lot of interests that come in that are different than if you're selling a house, so to speak, a residential property. So there are things that need to be looked at and, and solidified. Environmental studies, uh, depending on what the property is going to be used for, you need to make sure that that DEQ basically has no issues with that. Uh, federal and state as, as far as that goes. Uh, that's the only thing I could be thinking of. And, and you definitely want to make sure purchasing or buying that you have checked everything out that you can check. Trey, do you I have anything really... you can add for that? Yeah, I, w I would just say people should think of pieces of property as, uh, as buying a car and you want to kick the tires and you want to have the mechanic look under the hood because you'll be surprised that a property that maybe doesn't look like it's got a whole lot of problems with it may have had tanks in the ground or maybe loaded with the as with asbestos and and things like that and and so kicking the tires or doing what i call a phase one environmental assessment is a smart thing to do and the regulators will look at you as a wise person versus a foolish person when it comes to that if if you do have some some challenges and typically deq does work with uh developers and redevelopers in, in trying to solve the problems in a cost-effective way. So anyway, that's my two, two cents worth. Trey, that's, that's great advice. I mean, I think in some ways that's, that's preventive medicine is what it is. And, we, and people don't want to spend money up front, you know, but then when they don't, they end up uh, spending a lot more money on the back end to fix the problems that they didn't realize were there. And that's, that's true, I think, in, in a lot of areas. Uh, one, one reason why we encourage people to come to lawyers uh, before they enter into transactions is so that uh, they can, even though they have to may pay something up front, it's going to cost them less in the long run because we can usually keep them from getting into problems. And that's what the due diligence you're talking about also does. So thank you for that comment. Email us your questions. The address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking with attorney Francis Springer about administrative law. How many Mississippi agencies are there in the state government? I'll tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Ryder Taff, co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Podcasts can be found on our website or on your smart device's podcasting platform. You're 
listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill, and we do hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. Lots of different podcasting platforms out there, just dozens and dozens. I happen to like Podcast Addict. I downloaded it to my Android phone. Apple phones already have, uh, iPhones already have them uh, preloaded. But I touched the plus. It took me to a page to search for podcasts. I just typed in in legal terms in the search area, and it brought up our show. Then I was able to touch our photo and then subscribe. And so now I'm notified when any new episodes are loaded up. And there's a great website, ms.gov. And according to that website, we have 133 state agencies. This morning, we're talking about regulation law or administrative law with our guest, Francis Springer, an attorney with the Springer Law Firm. And we have a call on the line waiting. It's Becky from West Point. Becky, thanks so much for calling in to In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? Hi, good morning. It's Vicki. Oh, that's okay, though. But my question is, um, with regard to the um, administrative agency always being presumed to be correct in the first place, my understanding of the Constitution and constitutional authority is that it protects the rights of the citizens to protect it from over-intrusive government and government overreach and make sure our rights are being protected. And to hear that an administrative agency is automatically, as an arm of the government, automatically presumed to be correct, um, that doesn't sit well with me. How how do we work with that with, when we consider that the Constitution protects our rights, but yet administrative agency is automatically presumed to be correct? I, I, generally, I agree with you. I, I, I have a difficult time with the uh, presumption of guilt and in walking into any hearing. Uh, but there, there's specifically four things that, that our courts have recognized that has to be there for an agency uh, to be reversed. One of the four. One is that, again, like we said earlier, it's not supported by substantial evidence or if it was arbitrary and capricious. And then there's beyond the power of the administrative agency. And the fourth one that the courts recognize, which uh, maybe give you a little relief, because uh, I've seen this one work, is if there is a violation of statutory or constitutional rights that the party has. And again, it's just a presumption when you walk into the hearing that the agency is right. If there's a violation of that uh, constitutional right, I think that's easily shown. And in my history, that's been, it's been overturned, if not at the EAB, in the courts. Uh, so our judges specifically are very familiar with uh, constitutional and statutory rights. And if it does sweep past the EAB, which it rarely does, but if it does, I think the courts are gonna catch it. And, you know, to Vicki's point, you know, the, the presumption is just a, that's, you're absolutely right, Francis. I mean, it's just a starting point. And the truth is somebody's gotta make the decision and we need these agencies, you know, we need somebody to, to issue licenses uh, for businesses. We need somebody uh, to make decisions, you know, regarding uh, Social Security. And so because those are the theoretically the experts and they're the people doing it every day, we start off saying, well, chances are 
you know, maybe they got it right, but that doesn't mean that they can infringe on our rights. I think, you know, somebody like Francis will protect those. So it's just a starting point. When people hear that presumption of, of correctness, it really, I think it can be an overstatement that somehow or another that, that means the government is always right. Thank you, Becky. Well, we Francis, appreciate okay, you talk. calling in. Okay. Yeah, that was, uh, we appreciate that. And um, so, Francis, how are regulations created then? So, you know, people are concerned about regulations and decisions by administrative agencies. Do, does the agency just all of a sudden say, you know, get behind closed doors and say, Here's, here are the regulations that we're going to stick on people, or, or is there a process? Well, we hope, we hope that's not done, but I can't say that sometimes that's probably not done. Uh, essentially, all regulations are creatures of statute. The statute authorizes the agency to make regulations. So while they may not be codified in the statute, they're basically created by that. Now, agencies generally put these together in the area that they're overseeing based on on what's known to be needed. Uh, like the caller earlier was talking about DEQ. Uh, I don't think, respectfully, the IRS would know how to put in qualifiers that DEQ would enforce. So they have their experts there, just like DEQ couldn't do tax law. So there are people that are trained and hired that have degrees in those areas, and they generally get together and they decide what regulations are needed based on what's known to have happened or possibly happened that they can prevent. Uh, some are seen as overreaching and unnecessary, uh, but sometimes those are decided that when the whole story is not known. And sometimes they are. And when they are and they're shown, the courts can't overturn them. And yet, typically, don't they have like a notice and comment period, too, where I know in, in the tax area, there's a proposed regulation will come out and we have an opportunity to give input on that proposed regulation before it becomes a final regulation. So usually, I mean, these things are done in the open. Uh, and and people can comment. You mentioned, um, uh, you know, before when we we, we interacted uh, uh, prior to the show, that they get imp they get input from the industries they serve. A lot of times, uh, you know, they're looking for the experts in the industry to help them uh, create those regulations. Now, where do I find it? Where do I find regulations? Uh, luckily, we are in 2020. If, if 2020 can be viewed as luckily in any regard. Uh, we got them at our fingertips on the internet for people that can get to the internet. Just about every agency is going to have a website. And within those websites, there will be guides to the regulations. There's uh, free access to the United States Code of Federal Regulations, which is very complicated, but it is open to everybody that can read that. Um, the state agencies, like the Department of Public Safety, they have websites that list most of their regulations. Uh, but if there are questions, you know, you can contact an attorney that, that knows that area, or you can go to the library. You know, a lot of these, especially in the law libraries are there, or many public libraries, they're there. But I would say probably today, everybody can find them just with a good Google search. And, you know, sometimes I think people think regulations are there to make their lives more difficult, but a lot of these regulations actually do limit government action as well. Uh, they kind of cut both ways. And so, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I, I always tell people, well, you know, you can't really complain about a regulation or a statute unless you've actually read it. Um, and so, you know, it's there for people to read and to, to see, you know, instead of just, instead of looking on Twitter at what, it, what somebody else says it says, it's good to actually be able to read it yourself. I agree. Uh, so, 
Now, you mentioned regulations um, can be challenged. So when they can they be unconstitutional? Now, we talked about agency rulings could be unconstitutional, but could a regulation be unconstitutional? Oh, they definitely could. And uh, a person to challenge that would have to have standing. It would, they would have to be affected somehow by that regulation. And if they challenge that, take it to court with, without any kind of infraction being cited, the burden's on them to show that the regulation is unconstitutional. And that may be able to be done, but generally I think that comes up when somebody's been uh, threatened with a fine or charged over a violation of that. And if it's found to be unconstitutional, it's not going to be allowed. So um, if, how, what should someone do? I mean, it's one thing to have a ruling against you and they come to a lawyer like you to appeal it. What if I read a regulation and I say, that seems like that, that's going to be violative of someone's constitutional rights. What would a person do in that case? There are a couple of things I guess they could do. They could always contact the agency um, and give input and see where that goes. Now, that may or may not change anything. And again, I think challenging it in a court of law is going to take standing. You're going to have to be, you know, one of the people that's affected by that uh, generally pretty directly. Uh, but they could also contact their legislators and say, hey, we need to change this law a little bit. The agency is not doing it, so we need to look into this. And the legislature can always make a statute that directs a regulation or does away with the regulation. Um, or without that, they could contact the governor. And again, the governor has overall say-so over every administrative agency because they're carrying out the functions of government, and that's what he's there to oversee. So a number of things like that, but usually it's back to the elected officials for the final say-so. For instance, I've, I've, I've seen situations where um, the regulation was just out of date. You know, the Internal Revenue Code changes so regularly that the regulations have trouble keeping up. And so you've got a regulation that's now regulating a code section that's not there anymore. And that's clearly not valid. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something that lawyers have to keep, keep track of because, uh, you know, the statute may change quicker than the regulation could. It's constantly changing. We take your questions all the time on our email address. It's legalterms at mpbonline.org. The website usa.gov lists governmental agencies alphabetically. I had to count these. I couldn't, I couldn't Google. I couldn't Google. I had to count these. How many are listed? I'm going to tell you next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Scott Simon. If you've raised children, you know the best way to address fear is with truthful information, calmly and comfortingly delivered. That's what NPR News always tries to do in times of crisis, too. 
That old car in your driveway can actually help us. By donating it to this station, you'll turn your car into more solid information brought to you by voices you trust. Here's how. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app. Absolutely love having that app on my phone, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our live show, you can hear Southern Remedy, relatively speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. Okay, now, according to USA.gov, which just going there, clicking around, was uh, interesting, there are 623 U.S. governmental departments and agencies. Now, there might have been some naming duplicates on that, but uh, that is a lot of regulations and authoritative bodies to have to keep up with. We are talking with attorney Francis Springer about regulatory or administrative law, and we do have room for maybe one or two phone calls or emails, so get to, to the phones right now. And, you know, listen, and Francis, we were talking about during the break whether that number is too many, and, and Francis had a good good insight on that. Francis, I mean, is that too many uh, agencies? You know, to me, it sounds like it right off. But when you think about everything that goes on day to day with with even what we're seeing with COVID-19 and beyond that, with with food, with everything else, I, I can't say there are too many uh, far from that because there's a lot that goes on today that has to be looked over. And uh, we're fortunate to be in a country that does look over these things. We really don't have to worry if our water's going to be safe when we go to drink it, you know, things like that. Our food's going to be safe. So these agencies do a lot of good. I, I, I agree. I mean, I, somebody has to do it, you know, and whether it's going to be a governmental agency or a private entity, um, you know, that somebody would have to, to oversee these things uh, for our, our safety. And so, um, but I know people uh, often feel that we are over-regulated. And so I think it's a, a good question and a good debate. Now, let's, let's talk about some uh, specific administrative bodies that may affect our day-to-day lives. And, and since Social Security Administration was uh, one that uh, was dealt with on Money Talks, you know, it's a good, a good one because everybody uh, who is working has paid into Social Security. Uh, and so how do, how do I interact with that agency? What, when it comes time, to uh, to get uh, you know my social security benefits, what what do I do? As far as attaining benefits, I've not gotten to that aspect of life just yet, so I'm not really sure on that. But I know that uh, most of the things are going to be probably online to a big degree or through the mail. Uh, but many issues I've had to deal with the administration about, I've had to go to the office, like corrections on, on the Social Security card. My name was misspelled on mine uh, since birth, but I didn't realize it until I went to work. And that was several years ago, but I had to go to the office physically to have that changed with my birth certificate. 
and uh, I had to do that a couple of times, you know, with, with my children to get their uh, cards that have been misplaced this out of the other. So a lot of the interaction with the Social Security Administration has to be done one-to-one. Yes, and as you mentioned online, I mean, it, uh, you can check your benefits record, you know, whether you're uh, younger or, or getting close like I am. You can check and see what, you know, uh, what your benefits might be if you retired a certain date. So they got a, a lot of these agencies have really useful websites and can't uh, underestimate and understate that that can help us. Um, Especially so, now um, when well, everyone should be staying home if they aren't at work or doing an essential errand. Right now, according to Liz Gill and Dr. Dobbs, everyone should be at home and trying to take advantage of all the website activity that they can. You're right, Liz. I think, you know, one one of the reasons uh, most people do the right thing, and the only people who need mandates are the people who wouldn't do the right thing otherwise. You know, so it's like wearing seatbelts. Most of them wear seatbelts anyway. Um, we have to have a mandate for those who would refuse to do it, uh, even though it's clearly will save lives but let's so let's talk about same with masks obviously so what about um let's talk about licensure francis what what uh you know a lot of people have to deal to get uh, their their licenses for uh, operating a business um so what kind of agencies do they deal with in that respect depending on what type of business it is uh, say a restaurant a restaurant's going to have to be inspected and, and given a license to operate by the uh, Mississippi Department of Health. Uh, we're talking about Dr. Dobbs, his, his agency. Uh, back to federal firearms licensees, they have to be licensed by the ATF. Uh, but we can get down as simple as to anyone that has a driver's license has been licensed by an administrative agency. Administrative body of the Department of Public Safety has said you qualify to have a driver's license. And until you do something to violate that qualification, Oh, you have a right to that. So administrative agencies and licensure, they're they're basically in almost every part of life, it seems like. Uh, But each person also has an avenue of appeal if they have a problem with that licensure. Yeah, and you mentioned it. A lot of times it depends on the specific business where where you're licensed. We as lawyers are fortunate that we have our own licensing entity, which is, you know, the state bar in the various states. I'd say right. fortunate the students taking the bar exam uh, this year may not agree <laughs> with that. But, you know, so, you know, sometimes businesses then regulate themselves uh, through agencies like that. Um, so how do you keep up? I mean, as, as a lawyer, I mean, you, you've got to deal with all these entities, and some of them are going to be entities that maybe um, you don't deal with as much. What, how, do you, how do you know what to do when you approach a, a particular administrative agency? What I have to do is definitely research it. Uh, there's some areas like civil service and, and the EAB I do fairly regularly, so I kind of keep up and know what those are going. But if I took something on that I hadn't done in, say, a year, uh, I'll say, you know, like I was talking a minute ago with a, an ATF issue, an FFL issue, I would have to go look at the regulations and make sure. And generally when somebody comes to me, they have the accusation and the regulation they've been accused of, of violating. So it's easy to focus on that. But I think any attorney owes a duty to the uh, potential client to research and make sure you're on the right thing. Because at the end of the day, if you're not, there's gonna be a serious problem. 
Francis, we are so. I'm. I'm sorry, Professor Gershon. We are just about out of time. I I just wanted to make sure to let you know how much we appreciate you coming on to in in legal terms and giving uh, your knowledge, volunteering to to give advice to all of our listeners and emailers on legal topics. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. We we appreciate our. uh, Mississippi College lawyers and our University of Mississippi Law School graduates also. And did they when when was the bar, Professor Gershon? Or when have they gotten their results from the last one? Yes, our students have done real well. You know, the, I, the thing is, um, this was a weird bar exam, Liz, because it was done uh, online in some states, live in Mississippi. Um, I have a nephew in California who took the California bar, but it was a couple of months late that he had to take it online. So it's been a strange year. I love the story of the lady who was who gave birth in the middle of the bar exam, and they let her pause to do that. So that's going to wrap up for today's In Legal Terms, our call screener today. We appreciate all of our MPB employees who help us out, Jay White, our engineer, and for Professor Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I am Liz Gill. Join us next Tuesday live at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 